Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Seasons greetings, and by season, we mean season four of Undermine, which launched last fall. And look at us now. You haven't heard from us in months. It's now spring, and we're still in season four. Not to be confused with the Four Seasons, which is a landscaping company outside Philadelphia. But our show tonight is going to focus on a winter's eve, December 30th, 1997, as we follow fish down the funk tube to land us on the floor of Madison Square Garden for a great fish show. It's the third night of their New Year's run and the second of three nights at Madison Square Garden. This is Undermine. I'm your host, Tom Marshall. And instead of one co-host, I thought we'd bring on both of them and let them fight it out. The last one standing gets to come back next season by themselves for a 30-minute monologue about each show from summer 1998. Um, and if they send me a reminder, I might even listen to a couple of them. Well, um, Tom, to be fair... How many episodes of Undermine did you listen to from last season? I probably should. Uh, where can I find those? <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> Ask RJ. Um, hey, guys. We have Hi, finally, arri- we've finally arrived. This is the night before the night, which, if you ask me, is actually the night in this specific case. But maybe also in most cases, it is always the night before the night, but also the night. So uh, that, that's where I am. Uh, <laughs> you said maybe in all cases, and so I'm going to go with uppercase, uh, as in the N in night should be capitalized was when you say that this was the night. And V2 probably should be capitalized. So capital T, capital N. In any case, guys, are we here for the dad jokes or are we here to talk fish? Well, you know, dad, dad jokes, probably. I guess dad jokes. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, guys, you you and Benji, Tom, you and Benji were both at this show, as far as I, I know. Maybe you don't know, but 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 I, I, I almost think I certainly know was. I almost certainly was at this show. 
There, um, there's, there's something that happens later in the show that involves one of you coming on stage, and I won't spoil it by telling you which one. Um, so, Ben Benji, your your stage appearances are also hello Cleveland, really great. <laughs> so, I have to, I have to say, you know, if you listen to this, you know that this is an amazing show, and I mean, this is what I'm talking about in terms of a show, a huge bust out to open the first set, the first Sneak and Sally in 921 shows with a funk jam. Damn, and it just doesn't slow down. And I didn't even realize this until I looked back that this is the second rated show of all time on fish.net. Um, do, you, do you guys know what the first is? 12.31.95. 12.31.95 or 11.17.97? 12.31.95. 12.31.99. Oh, Bid Cypress doesn't count. Maybe it doesn't count. Maybe it doesn't count. But this is ahead of, of 12.31.95 on, according to ratings. But we're oh. not gonna, we can't get into ratings because then we'll have to update everyone on and how the Nielsen system. And then we'll have to wonder system, what ours are. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we're, we don't have enough time to explain Nielsen and, and how that works, which is obviously how these shows are rated. So, um, exactly. guys, tell, tell me what you remember, if anything, about this first set because we could we could talk about it all day but unfortunately we don't have all day well rj i know that you love this show and i also know that um a lot of people love this show it's it's uh, as you just said you know it's it's uh it rains up there so you know but just like the previous two nights this is a first set that i don't often uh revisit and it's not because it's not fantastic it it, it absolutely is but you know in 1998 when tapes of the show would have first been in circulation, uh, you know, in the the old United States Postal Service social network, um, sometimes you would only get one set of a show. I mean, I usually get both of them, but then the next problem is where where do you listen to fish usually? You know, for me, I listen to fish most often in my car, right? So back then, every set was on a cassette, and every cassette took up space, and so in your car, you might have you know like all of the second sets from this run. And the third set from New Year's Eve, but but none of the first. You know, you had to, uh, you had to be more deliberate, and it was it was more of an effort. So I think that's why I haven't listened to this first set as often. Tom, what were you doing during this first set, and do you have any memories of any of the music? Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song. I mean, that, 
You're right. I mean, you know me, so you you're asking me this out of knowledge of being on stage with me and and my weird method of preparing. So I knew I had something happening early in the second set. And uh, as you may have suspected, RJ, I was definitely thinking hard about it. And so, you know, as such, I probably spent a lot of this set in the in the band room preparing mentally but also like needlessly fretting because i just do that's just how i i prep for stage <laughs> um, so i can't say honestly that i remember a lot of this first set either well you know i i do love it rj i i said you know earlier i, I didn't go back and listen to it often and that's true but this this uh, past week going back to listen to it i think the sneaking sally and the taste right out of the gate is the segment that you probably want to take with you. And the rest of it is wonderful in the room, top shelf fish. You know, the stash is, is it's a great stash, but really aren't they all, you know, it's like Wolfman's brother. It's like every, or bathtub gin. They're, they're all great. I've never heard of bad stash. Chop Dust Torture, on the other hand, is more hit or miss depending on if they just fire it off or fire it up, you know? Um, and Tom, you wrote those lyrics do you think that, you know, as we all get older, do you think that Trey will always be comfortable singing the can't this wait till I'm old, can I live while I'm young part? <laughs> yeah, how long do we have to wait until he's old, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I will answer that. I will answer that. But I but first a quick word about set one. So I walked in the woods yesterday and listened uh, to this whole show. I walked for a long time, three hours. Uh, this show is a long show. Um, I love it. The stash, of course, is great. You're right, Benji. And the jam uh, has this like quiet and moody thing where they're listening to each other so well. And I think Amar, uh, Amar Sastry, who does some of the music for our show, um, used to do these things where he would sort of anatomy of a jam, analyze jams. And he was the one that kind of made me realize like when one of the band members hints at a certain other key or, or a certain other mode of, of jamming. And I could hear it in this stash and it becomes moody and they're listening incredibly well. And, and then also just like the fact that Trey, all he has to do is like touch the ending note and Mike and Paige immediately start singing the outro. Uh, and I just, it's like the, kind of like the quintessential 97 heightened awareness jam mode that the band's in that I just love. But for me, it is about the sneaking Sally um, uh, and, and taste, uh, which, which was, was still kind of new for me to see um, the band. The band was so amped about playing sneaking Sally. It was palpable in their discussions and in their private backstage practice room, uh, which I should have had video for. I, it's like one of those things I, I kick myself, you know, cause I saw so many of these like, before the big bust out practices. Um, and so I was one of those people who didn't really know anything about this song or Robert Palmer, and I still don't. Uh, but, for, <laughs> but for whatever reason, um, the, the band's excitement about it spread to the audience and it honestly set the mood for the, for the whole show. And Taste, by this time in late 97, I'd been listening to um, nonstop to the Billy Breathes version. Um, and it was burned into my soul. And Mike, his approach for this particular song was so bizarre and different um and we temporarily lost rj and i hope that it's still recording uh yeah we got him back the recording stayed on rj so i think we're okay um 
uh, but like Mike's approach, uh, you know, his role was the solid anchor that guided the song through, to me, difficult terrain um, and ma- made it sound easy and natural. But for this version, he was completely unmoored and the band was hitting notes and he was hitting notes, not where I felt the band or the song needed them, but instead he's kind of soloing, testing the waters, adding color. It's brilliant. And I remember actually asking him about it, maybe not this particular one, but asking him about playing taste. And he said, there are two ways to play the bass to taste in sort of Mike cryptic fashion. And I guess this was way number two. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> in any case, it's great. And and I'm so glad I re-listened. Um, so, so is Trey ever getting tired of singing, can't this wait till I'm old, can I live while I'm young? Well, no. He loves singing that. It's the payoff. <laughs> it's the payoff line. And he loves Chalk Dust Torture uh, so much. But of course, he recognizes the irony in the words as he and I and the band approach the 60 barrier. 60 years old, dudes. Can you? I can't wrap my head around it. Uh, it's happening to me very soon, a couple months. And I think Paige is about to cross that line next month, May, I think. Uh, so he's he's the first one of of, well, the fish insider gang um, that's going to cross that 60 line. Uh, but well, I'll tell Tom, you one thing. Yeah. Tom, before you get into the the end of this, which I know, I think I know where you're going. Can I just say about taste real quick that this song, it underwent a lot of like transformations, right? It started as fog that surrounds, then it maybe just on tapes became taste that surrounds and then it became taste. And I feel like by 97, they like figured out the like where it fit how it fit and i feel like before that it was kind of like experimenting how it fit into the live rotation but it it really like by fall 97 it just like occupied this space that i think it was really kind of important like coming out of that sneak and sally it was just a perfect landing place and i just it's interesting some of these songs especially now in like 4.0 where there's like some of the trey solo stuff or the stuff that you wrote with Trey right, you know, before the pandemic, it's like kind of hard to figure out where it fits, but then you like listen to a show and you're like, Oh, that now this is where it fits. I feel like that's, that's what this taste does for me. I I love it. I love it. And, and we should remind people, uh, maybe we can put in the show notes if, uh, you guys don't remember the exact one, but Benji and I, uh, last season, well, no, possibly early this season, uh, talked about this song and, and how, there were different lyrics and how did Fishman grab uh, every other lyric and start saying it as part of the song? Yeah, I, I don't what, remember the episode offhand. However, I do remember we took turns reading the lyrics and, and we, we up, we like, we, tra- we, we traced the changes. Yeah. Yeah. We did so an archeological dig. Yeah. So we, we sort of reconstructed uh taste and fog that surrounds and how, how it became its current version. But um, anyway, uh, Go back and listen to every single thing that we've ever done and, and you'll find that. Um, but I will tell you one thing. Um, if I do have to revise any of the lines of Chalk Dust Torture at this particular moment, it might be, can't this wait till after the break? Can't I live when we come back? All right, we are back from break and I was just getting yelled at by uh, my boss, the boss, RJ, for not knowing exactly uh, which episode we talked about the fog that surrounds. I'm sorry, I I do not, but we are going to put it in the show notes. I promise you that. And by we, I mean RJ. So anyway, before the break, (laughs) we were talking about December 30th, 1997. And now, believe it or not, we still are, except it's the second set. 
Oh my God. So guys, we just got to get straight into this ACDC bag. So, all right. There, it's kind of a slow tempo to start. And then about seven minutes into it, Trey and Mike are kind of like doing this little, you know, they're, they're communicating. And then Paige comes in with these like instantly recognizable riffs on the keys. And if you, well, maybe it's only instantly recognizable if you've listened to this a hundred times like I have, but Trey starts a little like psycho killer tease and thank God they didn't go into psycho killer because that would have, that would have thrown, you know, that's what they did in Dayton, right? Same, same transition. And it would have just, the whole set would have been different, but um, they get into like this, you know, just kind of slowly into this kind of spacey jam. And then like 16 minutes into it, there's this like blissy arpeggios from Trey, which we, we know from fall 97 and then comes like the rock so- soloing after that. And it's just, it's an adventure. And it's probably, I think it's the third longest um, ACDC bag. And to, to quote our, our friend Scott Gray on one of the best episodes of the past season, 622-94. Um, this is the third longest if you're a size queen, which is what he called me. Um, but I think this is one of the best, like maybe, I mean, after Hampton and maybe after the Boise 99 version, but it's interesting, Benji, like this, it's another example of a song that evolved from a rocker into a jam vehicle. I was looking back. I wonder if this is ever going to get that kind of treatment again. So two part question, Benji, first, what's your take on this monster? And second, will they jam ACDC bag like this ever again? And by this monster, he doesn't mean me. Sorry. Well, then my take uh, on this monster. And RJ, shout out to shout out to Monster, who maybe is listening. Yes, who who may be listening. Hey, but monster. my take on this monster, RJ, is that yes, it is a monster, um, and I have <laughs> I have more to say about it, as you probably guessed. But but first, let me answer the second part of your question: Will they jam ACDC bag like this ever again? You know, Lucille Bluth, Arrested Development, might say something like, you know, I don't understand the question. And I won't respond to it. Well, I do understand the question, and it's a simple question, and I am going to respond to it, but it's not a simple answer. They will never jam ACDC bag like they did on 123097 because they're not a band given to stagnation. Will they jam the song out into type two territory again? Certainly, and they and they and they have. Look, you know, there were type two stealing, uh, type two show stealing ACDC bands in 1997. There are two of them. So the first one was just a month before this one, and that was in Hampton, Virginia at the Mothership. Um, and in fact, you know, that ACDC bag kind of defines that run and by extension that that tour, you know, and that the band didn't have to rely on their show horses to win that race. So, you know, 97 was one of those periodic years where they really like to drive home the fact that any song on any given night should be given, you know, the treatment. And we saw that most recently, and I, I think most successfully in 2021. But this ACDC bad, I mean, in my opinion, this ACDC bad is kind of the ultimate one, right? Or, or as you might say, Benji, the penultimate one. <laughs> well, you know, Tom, actually, factually, this is the penultimate 20 plus minute version of ACDC bad because two years after after this, there was one more and that was on 9-14-99. If I'm going to channel my inner Brian Brinkman, uh, <laughs> they have uh, that, you know, it's that equally legendary version from Boise, Idaho, right? 9-14-99. So I think that one is technically the longest one to date, but all three of these versions are over 20, under 30, 
And coincidentally or not, they're also my top three favorite versions. But this one, 1230, it, it just hits differently. You know, maybe this badge is, is just more of my bad. Uh, I, I was at all three of these. And I therefore walked out of three fish shows marveling that ACDC bad was actually the highlight of the night. But but this one, 1230, I, I mean, RJ, this just gets the gold, you know, for, for me. It's got Chow Funk, but it also rocks in, in turn rolls. You know, the reason that I said they might not ever jam out of ACDC bad like that ever again, though, is because one... This is a Vincent Van Gogh, and and if you're Vincent Van Gogh and you just painted Starry Night, you might not paint so many Starry Skies after that, right? And two, <laughs> I, I hope you didn't paint a lot of Starry Skies after that. And but uh, two, uh, the other part of my point here is that when when they do another twenty plus minute ACDC badge, and they will at some point, it will sound more like the twenty twenty two bads from Philly or Merriweather because we're just in a different era of, of fish now. You know, but um, I don't know, RJ. What what's your take after this? They do the ACDC badge. It segues beautifully into McGrupp, uh, you know, which I think took us all by surprise. Then still takes me by surprise now, even listening back on the tapes, even knowing where it's going. Um, but I I I think it's a great call. Do you like it here? And wow, that's a lot to respond to. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I mean. It's so, it's, first of all, I just want to go back to the Boise. I know we're not allowed to do this on Undermine, but I'm going to do it anyway, which is the Boise 99 ACDC bag is just after this episode, just go back everyone and listen to that because it's just, it's just phenomenal. Um, so Tom, I think when we talked about, I believe it was 11-26-97 and you loved the McGrupp. I think it was, it was that show, or maybe it was another 97 show. Um, that you really, you really love the McGrupp and, um, that this is, this is maybe like one of, one of the best just because it, it's a little bit different. Um, but it, it's, it works well here. I mean, I think, you know, any cool down after like a huge jam is totally fine by me. And I think McGrupp works, works really well here, although it is a little bit more of a spooky kind of thing. It's not as, it's not a cool down like life boy, you know, it's a little, it's like a cool down, but also still kind of floating in outer space. So I, I, I approve of it. I think it was a nice transition and I would gladly hear McGrupp anytime. I'm right That's there with take. you. Uh, yeah. I, I don't really have a take. I, I mean, like I said, I, I kind of listened uh, to this show with uh, like full memory and cognition uh, just yesterday. And and uh, the McGrupp kind of stands out. I think I do. I did. It did strike a memory chord um, because you know I love the song. It's like the the beginning to Game Henge, and you never know like what's going to happen after they play McGrupp. Sometimes you know in the back of your head you're thinking what what's next. Um, but uh, this one's beautiful, and um, I remember just thinking about the. Um, you know, it was I really good headphones and I was playing it and it just was pristine, sounded beautiful. Uh, my, the version of re the recording I had um, and kind of like getting into the, I remember Trey had said that he kind of ripped off the, the from Here Comes the Sun, the Beatles. <laughs> so I went back and listened to that. And of course, it's right in there. Check it out. Check that out. That's my little tidbit for today.
Thank you. Your tidbits are always great, Tom. Um, so Benji, at this point, I don't think the set's over yet. Um, there's some stuff that happens after this, um, according to the set list. Yeah, well, Tom did say that there's magic that always can happen after McDrop, and you never quite know. And I think on this night, he probably knew what was going to happen after McDrop. But, uh, you know, here's the thing. We're talking about that Harpua now, and I am constantly amazed at how low Harpua gets ranked in some matchups like Weak and Woods Bracket. You know, like and, mm-hmm. and granted, I understand, like, Harpua and Harry Hood, they're two totally different beasts, right? But uh, to me... Harpoo is one of those songs that no matter how no matter how many times I've seen it live, I'm always chasing it. I'm always hoping for it. I'm always thrilled when it happens. And the reason being is it's not the musical pinnacle of the show per se, but there's also something to be said about entertainment value. Right. And to me, when when they do that umpapa, it usually signifies something else is happening. You know, it's going to tie the night or it's going to tie the run or something together for us. It, it, it has a purpose. And before they even get that last umpapa out, I'm already anticipating, uh, you know, that there's going to be a fun moment when we find out what song Jimmy is listening to. So the purpose of this Harpua on 1230, of course, was to set up the Nets Night New Year's Eve gag, you know. Um, but then... The song that Jimmy was listening to after a, a, a Trey story that was longer than my ACDC bag explanation uh, earlier, it, it stole the entire show in, in terms of sheer entertainment. Uh, there was at that moment, ladies and gentlemen, when New Jersey's favorite son came out to lead a, a duet on a Proclaimers tune with Trey. So I don't know, Tom, whose idea was it to cover 500 Miles? I, I honestly think it was mine. I would always like kind of propose things to Trey songs, you know, like the Oasis song or, you know, Champagne Supernova or some other stuff. I think, I think we both were sort of like secret. We had secret pleasures of listening to pop songs. Um, but this one, um, I was kind of obsessed by it uh, because uh, of the video I saw of those gorky Irish brothers in their glasses and their wacky accents. And I, I kind of sang along with it and, it was too perfect, and uh, Trey agreed instantly. Did Did you know the purpose of that harpoon that night beforehand? I mean, I guess so. When you're in the rehearsal room, going through the song, right? I I, I don't know. No, I'm I'm not really sure. I, I don't I, I don't think I knew much about the gag. Well, then this will be something you do know a little bit more about. Uh, and I'm asking here for I guess uh, the Hannibal Lecter, if you will, uh, tell us how the Hannibal Lecter part came into it. And for, I mean, I, I would set this up for everybody listening, but everyone's heard this version. Everyone listening to, to this episode has definitely heard, uh, you guys seen Hannibal Lecter in the Proclaimers in 500 miles in the Harpua. So there's some wacky thing that the Irish brother, I don't know if they're brothers, actually, the Irish dudes do in <laughs> harmony together. Um, halfway into the song they they all go or or something like that and uh while we were practicing uh, one of us said Hannibal Lecter instead of whatever they're actually saying and i remember we just completely cracked up backstage at both of us being huge silence of the lamb fans and uh i vowed uh, not to sing it on stage um but when i got out there and we were performing it Trey sang it, I think, the second time. I think it was like, da-da-da-da, and he's supposed to answer me. I think he answered, without even hesitating, Hannibal Lecter. It could have been this, the first 
response or maybe the second, but it happened way sooner. I, I was thinking it wouldn't happen at all, but anyway, it was funny as hell. So if you see huge smiles on our face, it's not only because we're having a good time singing the song, it's because of the Hannibal Lecter joke. Well, I'm not even sure that I picked up on it at the, during that night until the, the re-listen. I, I can't, I honestly can't remember, but I do remember I definitely was smiling ear to ear. I mean, that was just, it was a great appearance, Tom. Oh, and also, by the way, I have to say that your accent was was admirable. <laughs> what what was what was going on at the end? Oh, um, well, let's see. They just played Day in the Life. Uh, and, and so I decided to call out my pal, uh, Big Phil, who was looming in my presence. He's this guy you can't miss. He's like nine feet tall. And he's uh, 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 so I said to him at the very end, I, I just kind of walked up to the mic and said, I'd love to turn you on, Big Phil. And I was thinking it was something that he might say because he's always very generous with his weed. <laughs> um, but so right at the very end, at the very end, right before I said thank you and left, took my silly glasses off and threw them into the crowd. Um, they were just the frames of cheap reading glasses and I had punched out the lenses. Um, so, so I threw them into the audience. And then in 2016, uh, when I, we started under the scales, um, a few times I suddenly mentioned that I'm wondering whatever happened to those glasses anytime it came up and can the person who caught them please identify themselves. And uh, so at a fish show a few years ago, the magic of social media, a dude came up to me and introduced himself as the one who caught them. And he said he had tried to obtain the glasses that night to give back to me. And I said, no, that's fine. You can, you, you should keep them. You caught them. Uh, and he said, oh, thank God. And it turns out that he gave them to a girlfriend who is no longer a girlfriend. Well, I mean, she's no longer a friend anyway. So, so Benji, what you said that Harpua, besides getting Tom on stage, there's a, there's a, purpose to the narration. I mean, the, the narration is, it's, it's kind of fun. I mean, it's, it's a little more cohesive than some of the narrations in that it's like an actual story that has some, or at least in theory has some rooting in reality, but um, you know, lost in space and, and the, but then they get into the pentagram and um, all pentagrams all, with foods, food, with all food the food items. What, what's your, do you have a, do you have a theory about this? Yeah, Benji. Um, I don't have a theory about it other than that uh, I have the recollection of it where at the time it almost, you know, there is that more and more recent years. You know, we said recently that that the trade uh, we lamented the trade isn't banter the way he used to. But then there was there was also uh, the 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 um, what am I thinking of, Audrey, the the pan uh, narration. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. and, and so. Yes, exactly. And Zamfir was Zamfir was very similar to this in some ways, you know. In this, in the same building, it was just. Uh, but I mean, I at the time I had, I I think, and it's hard to to you know without reconstructing history, it's hard to remember what I was thinking at the time, considering that it was 1997. But um, you know, it's just decades ago, lifetimes ago. But I I do remember. Thinking of a part of me was like, wow, this was really last minute, wasn't it? Where they're just like, he's throwing everything out there. And it was obviously pre-planned so that there was some feeling that this was going somewhere. But then when it didn't, you know, I, I said earlier that Harpua's have a purpose, but that wasn't always the case for years when they played Harpua. It was just, you know, an insular story that was fun and entertaining. And then Jimmy plays like the spin doctors or something. And that's a cool moment because it's a cover, you know, like or ABBA, or, you know, 
or whatever it is. And it's usually funny or cool or, you know, it, it's, it has entertainment value, but not the purpose. So on this night when they played that Harpua, I wasn't necessarily thinking, oh, they're setting up, you know, the New Year's gag. Now, of course, that's some, as soon as they say Oompa-pa, that's you're like, OK, we're going to get we're going to get a clue here, you know. But um, so that night, it wasn't until the following night that, that it came, you know, it became clear. However, I will say that I was on a, on a date uh, in New York City on New Year's Eve. So the day after this narration and uh, we walked by. I think the Guggenheim, we walked by, we, and there's a storefront with a, a, a museum and a gallery storefront. And she looks up and she says, oh my God, that's the utter ball. And I looked into the window and sure enough, there was an utter ball that was you know, a piece of art in the window. So that's my takeaway from, from this art. Wow. Okay. Well, that's, <laughs> that's a lot um, like this show because the show still wasn't over yet. There's a, a really fun hood that, that kind of de- devolves or dissolves depending on your perspective into my soul um, and <laughs> sleeping monkey and Gaiuti. And I think Benji, you mentioned on yesterday's show that this, the 1230 show was only slightly less uh, t- time than the 1231 show, which was three sets. And this four song encore all segues, Carini, Black Eyed Katie, back into Sneak and Sally, and a Frankenstein with Fishman on the vacuum. I mean, this is a all time encore here, but um, to to kind of end a, an all time show. It is, and you know, I think people. It, let's maybe do some disambiguation here. People always say it was a rumor at the time that that you know, they went over the the curfew and, and so they're going to use up that hour. And that makes a lot of sense to me. But also, um, you know, I know that not every, especially for indoor venues, uh, it's, it's oftentimes there is some, some regular out, outdoor venues, you have noise ordinances. And also if it's like a state or government run, uh, you know, venue, there's, there's issues there as well, but, but oftentimes there's wiggle room for when it ends uh, unless it's a union thing, which is which is also possible. Yeah, yeah. I think this was less noise and more uh, unionish. Um, it, and I know they paid. Um, and it's not so oh, they much. Did a, pay. They did it, pay. Uh, well, uh, definitely. I mean, it's not like a fine that they had to say. Well, here's you know ten thousand dollars or whatever. Um, it's more just an instantaneous overtime mode that the uh, union uh, they have to pay the union an extra hour even if they go one minute over. So it definitely happened. And they knew they went over, so they decided to take up almost the full hour since they were paying for it. And then uh, and then the payoff was that we got a funky dance party to end a funky dance party. You know, I'll take a uh, Trini into Black Eyed Katie, into Sneaking Sally, into Frankenstein encore over um, a Rocky Top <laughs> any day. Bite your tongue. I love Rocky Top. I, I do gonna... too, but for, do the math though, Tom. It's four versus one. I... I know. Okay. You're right. Four is bigger than one. Um, and that's going to do it for us today. Uh, we will see you again tomorrow. Same time, same place. I should say one more thing before we go, though. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, and Benji Eisen. Edited by Eric Limarenko. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. Production assistance from Nick Sejas. Original music by Amar Sastri. And art by Mark Dowd. Good night and have a pleasant tomorrow. Osiris. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. 
On Future Friday, I talk to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles, now on Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts.